don't know. I really don't. I mean, I was thinking about this after listening to the last episode, and I can I can remember what got me hooked on gun and what made me decide, okay, I I need to pay attention to this. But I don't I don't remember having a a aha moment that says I need to prep. For the guns, I do have that aha moment. And I, I, I've talked about it before. I don't know. I don't think it's ever been put on a podcast, but I've talked to several guys about it. And that uh, aha moment was, I don't know, I was 22, 23 years old and uh, went to a gun store, local pawn shop, because I was wanting a 308 rifle. I just decided I wanted a 308. Don't know why. Didn't really have a use for it. I wasn't a hunter. Uh, like I said, I was just a young kid. I'd had other guns in the past, but none of them were, they didn't ever mean anything to me. You know, it was just, it was a gun, whatever, you know, shoot it and then sell it when I didn't want it anymore or if I needed money. So anyway, I go to this local pawn shop and they've got this really cool looking 308 rifle. It was dirt cheap. It was like 200, 250 bucks, something like that. It wasn't very expensive, had a scope on it. And I'd never seen one before. And it was, it was different looking. That was what caught my eye. And uh, I bought it, took it home, showed it to a couple of buddies of mine. They were like, oh, cool gun, you know, blah, blah. None of us were really big into guns at the time. Ended up, I don't know, two, three months later, my girlfriend at the time, she wanted to go to Tunica, which is like the local closest place to gamble that is around here. It's uh, Tunica, Mississippi. Uh, you could go there and they have, you know, slots and the whole gambling thing. Anyway, she wanted to go. I was like, well, okay, we'll go. Uh, let me sell this rifle real quick. And I'll make some extra money and then, you know, we can stay an extra night or whatever. And she said, okay, cool. So I run to the pawn shop that I bought it from and I say, hey, I'd like to sell this gun back to you. And they were like, okay, 150 bucks. All right, no problem. I got my $150 out the door. I went called called my girlfriend, we met up and we went out. About three, two to three weeks after that, one of my buddies I'd told about the gun and had showed it, he uh, bang, 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 banging on my door. And it was, it was like 10 o'clock at night, bang, 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 bang. Open the door, I'm like, what's, what's up? And he comes like rushing in. He's like, dude, do you still have that gun? Do you still have that gun? I was like, no, I sold it like two weeks ago. Why? And he was like, oh no, you're kidding. I was like, no, I sold it. Why? He goes, how much did you get for it? What, 150 bucks. And he was like, no. And I'm like, dude, what's going on? And he pulls out this book that he had in like his cargo pocket. And it was called Jane's Military Manual of Arms. And he flips to the page and he goes, this right here, is this your rifle? And I said, yeah. He goes, don't look at the price. Come to find out what I had. And I didn't know because, you know, I was a stupid kid. I had what's called a Lee Enfield Enforcer. It was a British sniper rifle for the police. And instead of being in 303, like all of their other stuff, it was they had switched over to NATO. So it was 762 NATO 308. Uh, it's called a different name as well. Instead of Lee Enfield Enforcer, you can find it by that. And I can't remember what the military designation is, but it's like a L-134 or some shit like that. It, it's their military sniper rifle. And I had a legitimate sniper rifle and sold it for $150. So after that, I decided I'm going to know 
what I have. Thing was worth like three grand. Did you get it back? No, nope. went there and it had already been resold. I went the next day as soon as sun, you know, as soon as they were open, I was there. But that was that was the aha moment on firearms. That was when I decided if I'm going to own a gun, I'm going to know what it is. I'm going to know what it can do. I'm going to know how to run it because that was, you know, you got to think this was in, I don't know, probably 98, 99, $3,000 was a lot more then than it is now. Mm -hmm. Now three grams a lot. That would buy night vision. (laughs) Yeah. So that was my, my, my aha moment when it came to firearms. I don't really know what set off the prepping bug in me. I know I had, I had watched the doomsday preppers. Uh, I had watched all of those shows. I had read several books, but none of it actually clicked. I don't, I still can't remember what that click moment was. Uh, I do remember I had a case of MREs that I liberated from supply and I had those in my bedroom. They had actually started getting old. The stuff in it was starting to go bad. I'd had them for forever. Threw them out. And when I threw them out, I ended up having just, just by chance, like that next week or two weeks after somewhere in there, I ended up having some extra money on my paycheck. I went to the dollar store, didn't tell my wife or anything. I just went to the dollar store and I bought $100 worth of extra food and first aid stuff, a couple extra bottles of peroxide, a couple of bottles of, you know, rubbing alcohol, uh, a bunch of canned goods, uh, some dry pastas, just stuff I knew that lasted. And I don't really remember what set that off but when I brought it home I was expecting my wife to be you know like what are you doing you moron you know wait we're never going to eat all of this crap I brought it home and I said I don't know why I just got this stuff and she was like I think that's really smart and she goes because you never know and I was like really that's kind of what I was thinking is we never know and she goes yeah I think it's a good idea I think we ought to do more of this we took and put all of those supplies in cabinets and under drawers and here and there and everywhere. That was when I was like, okay, well, maybe we, we, we should look into this. Maybe we do need to know more about this. And we started, both of us started reading different stuff on, you know, on the internet, different websites. Uh, there used to be one called like Survivor Forum, I think. I can't remember the name of it. I haven't went there in years but I got all this information coming in and I started talking to the wife and she had all this information coming in. We just kind of started with that and randomly picked a place online. They had good prices. I liked it because the, their long-term storage stuff had a 25 year shelf life. You could buy it in a five gallon bucket or like a number 10 can. And, you know, you could uh, just store it. And that was what we did. We just started every, every couple of weeks, you know, when we had a little bit of extra money, instead of going out on a date, we would buy 40 pounds of rice that's in a five-gallon bucket that's mylar sealed with an oxygen absorber in it. A couple of weeks later, we'd buy 40 pounds of beans, you know, beans and rice. And then when we would get our tax return, we would uh, actually buy all the little stuff that was more expensive, you know, 
a little can of this that was $12 versus that 40 pounds of rice that was like, you know, $38 or whatever. So we started buying all the little extra stuff to throw in, you know, to make the rice and the beans where we can eat it because no one wants to eat bland rice and beans for every meal for six months. We just slowly started adding like that. Uh, at some point in time during this, my wife decided that she wanted a skill set. She wasn't really interested in guns. She knows how to shoot them. She kind of knows how to work them. She has her own guns, but she wanted a different skill set. So she learned how to knit so that she's like, if we've got yarn, I can make us clothing. If we've got, you know, the means I can knit this together, we'll have, you know, winter clothes or I can knit something and I can sell it or trade it if things ever got bad. So she started building that skill set. And while she was doing that was when I was doing guns and outdoor stuff, learning how to trap, which my dad had taught me how to trap as a kid. But, you know, going back and revisiting those skills, uh, my my dad was a uh, a self-employed bricklayer. And in the wintertime, when it gets below freezing, you can't really lay brick properly because your mortar won't set right. It can become too brittle if it if it flash freezes and it can and it just all sorts of crap can go wrong with it. So the way that my dad supported the family in the winter was by trapping and selling fur. So I learned when I was like 10 years old, I had my own trap line I would follow. And my dad showed me how to, you know, properly skin stuff. And then he would take my furs to the market. And he would sell them and then, you know, come back and give me a check for a hundred bucks or whatever I had made, which at the time was a lot of money. You know, when you're a kid and GI Joe man's like three bucks, you know, I could buy all the shit I wanted. I, I started revisiting those skills and, you know, learning how to trap again. And, you know, not that I ever really forgot how to hunt, but you forget the nuances of it. So I started spending more time in the woods hunting and, you know, one thing led to another. We're building our skill set. We're prepping our food. Never at one time that I can remember did either one of us, either me or my wife, say, you know what, this is kind of a waste of time or a waste of money or, you know, what are we doing this for? It never really came up. It was just something that we felt that we needed to do. If you pushed me and asked me what I thought now, you know, what is my thoughts on what would cause a reason to need to prep. I would say uh, some sort of economic collapse, uh, hyperinflation, something to that effect would be what I would think now is most likely to happen. Of course, that would have been pre-pandemic. Now, I don't know. I mean, it was really nice when they were talking about, you know, this coronavirus is killing people and you're seeing videos of people just dropping dead in China. I don't know if everybody saw those or not, but I saw a lot of videos of people just walking down the road, falling over. Now, were they staged? Were they fake? I don't know. This was in the early stages and it had a lot of people scared. And it was nice to know if this gets bad, A, I'm a dork and I like gas masks, so I've got a whole bunch of gas masks saved for us just because I think they're cool. 
you know, I collected several different styles just because I'm a door. B, we've got food. We don't have to leave this house. We've got well water. So even if we shut off the power, we've got two different wells. We've got a deep well that's ran with an electric pump, and then we have a hand pump out in the backyard. Now, granted, we'd probably need to you know, boil that water because of the fact that it is what you would consider shallow ground water. It's only like 30 foot down, but we had water, we had food, we had means to clothe ourselves, to feed ourselves, and we didn't have to worry about how bad this pandemic was. And it was scary, you know, I, I was worried at first. I was going to Walmart, I was fully masked up. I was buying all of the groceries for my parents so they didn't have to leave their house. I would bring them to their house, set them outside on their sidewalk and spread everything out. And my mom would come out with a mask on and you know a, a bottle of bleach water and she would spray everything down. And my dad was coming behind her and wiping the packages and then they would take them inside. And this was early on when they were talking about how this was gonna kill everybody. You know, We've since found out it's not as bad. There's still a lot of people who have lost family members and I'm not trying to cheapen that but it's not what they originally sold us. But it was really nice to not have to worry this entire time. If they locked us up, my job luckily was considered, you know, hell, what's the word that they used? Uh, essential. Thank you. My job was considered essential. So I've worked this entire time. I've never missed a paycheck. I've never missed a day. So, you know, kind of lucky in that aspect, but if it was bad, you know, how much would I have been exposed to it? Anyway long rambling story, it was nice to have. You know, we had set ourselves up by accident, not really even knowing what we were prepping for, and we ended up being safe this whole time. Um, between, between what we had bought, between our skills, we were, we were okay. And at, early on when we were buying this stuff and it was being delivered, my parents were seeing the delivery. And they're like, what, what are we getting? And I explained to them, don't really know, but it's good to have. And my parents actually even kind of get into it as well. You know, we used to live on the same property. So, I mean, we, we had extra security through them and we gave them extra security. We had extra food through them and we had extra food. So there were times where I would be like, hey, we're going to buy beans and rice. And my parents were like, okay, well, we're going to buy, you know, oats and evaporated milk. And we get one big order in, you know, or whatever. I don't know. I, I don't really know what my origin story is. It just kind of naturally happened. So what, what, I mean, so you said, uh, you know, economic uh, collapse and, and um, well, I guess everybody's prepping for a coronavirus kind of stuff right now, but how does that, how does that look now? How does that evolved into, I mean, you know, everybody in our community says we're prepping for zombies. You know, that's the yeah. fun, fun thing to prep for, but in, you know, reality, how does that look? I mean, I'll give you an example. And I knew this was a hole in my preps, but um, Mr. Pixel knows this, but the new year's Eve, Eve, I had a sump pump failure and I had water in my basement. So you know, it wasn't a natural disaster. It didn't totally destroy everything, but I've lost, I lost some flooring and had about an inch of water in the middle of my basement. Um, 
Well, you know that, Bo. I think I sent you pictures too. Yeah. But one of the things that has just kind of smacked me in the face, and I've known this for a while, is I don't have a generator. So if the power goes out and I can't run my electric sump, I'm going to have water in my basement again because I don't own a generator. Now, I know people that do, and I know where they're at, but I'd have to call a buddy of mine that lives three minutes down the road. Hopefully, he's at home, and he has the generator. And between the two of us, we have gas, and I could go and pick it up before my sump overflowed, you know? So um, that's something that I was looking at. So I was just kind of looking, is that, you know, where have you identified holes or what is that kind of look or how how did it evolve from your origin story, you know, as, as kind of a, you know, reality-based? Joking, you know, going back to the joke about the uh, the zombies. I have always been a big fan of zombie fiction and, you know, I had read a lot of the books and all of the movies and had always just really enjoyed that genre. And I too use that as a, I'm prepping for the zombie apocalypse as a catch-all because in a zombie apocalypse, you're not going to have power. You're not going to have water. You're not going to have infrastructure. There's a virus. And on top of that, you're not going to be able to go out because you're being chased by a zombie. So, I mean, it's kind of the, the catch-all. There's everything there. Right. Um, from that, you know, like I said, I kind of, I, I always thought originally that it would be some sort of economic collapse. And I thought, okay, something's going to happen. It's going to cause hyperinflation, which is going to lead to a depression, which is going to lead to worse than the 1920s, 1930s. But now, honestly, I don't, I don't even know if that's possible now because if you look at the entire world, the entire world is in debt, not just us. I don't know who we owe the money to, but if you look at it, we're in debt. China's in debt, Russia's in debt. If, if, if our economy collapses, it's gonna collapse the entire world the entire world will collapse all at once. And I used to really worry about that. I used to really think, oh my gosh, you know, China will come over here and they're going to team up with Russia and we're going to have Red Dawn and it's going to be crazy and EMPs are going to be going off so that then nuclear bombs and it's going to be annihilation. I just, I really, I don't know that, I, I don't know, I guess the older I get, maybe the more mature I get with it, and it, especially since we have had this coronavirus now, I think something more man-made is probably going to be the more likely thing to happen. Uh, when the coronavirus, I really didn't find that I was lacking anywhere just because of the area I live. The fact that we already had food and ammunition preps. Now, one thing I will say is... Uh, you and I have even talked about this, the amount of ammo needed. And you've got, I'm just gonna say X, Y, Z over here, and I've got less than that over here. My philosophy on it had always been, if I can spend, if I, if I live through enough gunfights to spend a thousand rounds, I've probably used up all of my luck. I'm probably gonna die real soon. Your philosophy on it was, yeah, but I can still train right now while there's a shortage. 
Absolutely. I've got that 5,000 on hand or that 2,000 on hand and I can train with this 2,000. Whereas I was like, dude, if I, you know, I've got all of my magazines loaded, I got a thousand rounds set back and I shoot and rotate out. Well, when prices went up, I couldn't shoot and rotate out. So I went several months without shooting because I refused to pay the prices. I could buy ammo. I could find ammo. I can reload. I have all of the stuff for reloading. I just, I was like, I, I refused to pay a dollar a round. I just, I wasn't going to do it. So I went first eight months, nine months of the pandemic shooting like one magazine a month is all I would shoot. And whereas you had the, the numbers to comfortably keep training, I didn't because I didn't want to use up everything I had and then not be able to buy. So I would say that that might have been a shortcoming I found is that maybe, uh, maybe I need to just, because I, I don't think I need 5,000 rounds of 223 and 5,000 rounds of nine millimeter. It'd be nice to have, but it's just not something that I feel that I need. After the pandemic, after the, the ammo shortage and how long it took to get ammo back down to a, what I consider a reasonable price, uh, maybe that would have been a hole in my prep or a hole in my philosophy. I got you. Yeah, I mean, you know, we've, we've talked about that several times because, you know, when the pandemic started, I'd lost my full-time job in March of 2020. So what I ended up doing is I ended up going to the range twice a week, you know, and training more because I, I ended up, you know, having time and I had the ammo to do that. That's all. That's, that's what I did. Um, so how, I mean, what are you doing now? Are you still doing the same things of, of buying more cycling through food preps and, or are you just comfortable where you're at? I'm, I'm still slowly buying. Uh, when it comes to ammo, uh, every paycheck, uh, I buy a box or two of nine mil every paycheck, even though it's more expensive, you know, I'll, I'll buy a box or two or nine mil and like one or two 20 round packs of 223, something like that, you know, something small. I'm not going out and spending, you know, great gobs of money at a time. Usually it's like, I don't know, probably 40 bucks. 50 bucks every two weeks. So, you know, 50, we'll, we'll call it 80 to hundred dollars a month in ammo. Uh, the nine mil I've been roughly shooting half. Like I'd buy two boxes of nine. I would shoot and train with one and store one, shoot and train with one and store one. Uh, the main reason I've been doing that is I have switched my carry gun to the uh, CZ, PO7, and I had been, uh, I had been using the Glock 48, and since this is a hammer-fired gun with a decocker, I really needed to get those repetitions in. So uh, since I switched to this, I don't know, a couple of months ago, that was what I was doing. I'd go to the range, and I was only shooting 50 rounds at a time and I would do one mag of slow fire I'd real slow draw it out present shoot with the double action drop the decocker reholster and I would repeat that 
for 15 rounds. I would then put in a second mag and all I would do is I would draw, I'd present, I would do a double action, release a single action. I would drop the hammer, decop, reholster, and that I would do that for a second one. So that would take 30 rounds out of the box right there, just doing individual drills. The last 20, I would load up, uh, I'd load up 15 in one mag, five in the other. And I would pull out and just try to go as fast as I could on double taps, working that double and working that single, just trying to get used to a double action, single action. And then the last five rounds is where I would focus strictly on accuracy with the hammer and I would, or with, the, with it in single action. So that would be my last five shots. And I would try to get as tight of a group as I could. And that would give me a 50 round practice. Uh, shooting everything from roughly seven, seven yards to, uh, we'll call it 15, seven to 15 yard range, you know, what I consider self-defense areas. So I would be training with that. Uh, and then I would be prepping by saving that, uh, that second box. And then on my rifle, the only time I've been shooting my rifle lately is if I'm testing or reviewing a new optic. Uh, I've been going through a lot of different optics because of that. So I am getting some trigger time. It's, it's trigger time here and there on it, you know, torture test, couple of shots. It's not like I'm burning through the ammo. It's not like I'm really running hardcore drills. Uh, I'm mostly, when I'm doing these, these reviews, I'm, I'm focusing on accuracy on my trigger press. It's not really a lot of cool tactical stuff where I'm running and gunning. Throwing the AR in the pool of death. It's kind of funny that, you know, I, I, I got the idea, all preps, you know, all, all, all cheers and everything go to AK Operators Union. He has a swamp that he throws his in and he'll leave them in it for 72 hours and then he pulls them out and shoots them when he's doing his review. It's where I got the idea from. I don't have a swamp, but I've got a little kiddie pool in the backyard. So I'd throw them in that. I let the, the first one, I let set in there for a few hours and that destroyed that optic. So then I started just doing an hour at a time. And if it survives an hour, then it'll go on to shoot. So that's, that's kind of where I'm prepping and getting my practice in with the guns and with ammo. Uh, this time of year, nothing's growing, obviously it's the winter. Uh, so we're not doing anything food prep wise. Uh, in the spring, you know, we, here on our little homestead, we've got fruit trees we've planted. We've got, uh, muscadines, grapes, blackberries, mulberries, apple, pear, and peach trees. Uh, plus, we generally grow a garden. We didn't grow a garden last year for two reasons. One, we had too many supplies, too many canned goods. Me and the wife, I know some people say, oh, your canned goods can last for 10 years. Yeah, well, I've also known the people getting sick from eating old canned goods. So, we will get one or two years worth of stuff saved up. And then we will spend a year where we eat all of that stuff down. Then the next couple of years, we build it back up. So this year was a, a eat what we've got. So we didn't grow a garden for that. And then also 
we had a really late frost this year and we had a really wet spring. So it was a good year that we decided to skip because we would have had a hard time getting anything to grow. My parents, they ran a late garden and they had tons of stuff. So we still got stuff from them, but we had a real, they, they had a, a real late garden. We had, you know, no garden so that we could eat up those supplies on buying food preps. Both the wife and I still feel comfortable where we're at with our 25 year shelf life stuff. The stuff that we have been slowly buying over the years. Uh, we've still got the, the oldest stuff still has like somewhere between 18, about 18, 19 years left on its age. So we're still good on that. The house that we bought was actually built by Mormons. And according to the Mormon faith, you're supposed to have food stores. So we had built-in shelves built uh, all over the house for food stores. So that was really nice and kind of a kind of a treat to just walk in and be like, hey, we've got, you know, this giant pantry, let's fill it up. So makes it really easy to see what we've got, to know what we've got, and to, to see where we're at. And like I said, we both feel pretty comfortable on food right now. Not to say that we won't start buying stuff again in the spring and start growing again in the spring. You are, did you always, I guess, was it like a family thing with like the gardens and all that? Or was that something that you acquired along the way as you went? Like, you know, you said you planted fr fruit trees and stuff like that. So you made a conscious effort to put that stuff there. Was that just something that you just wanted to do or was that something that you, you you found somewhere and it's like oh that's a good idea maybe we should do that how'd you how'd you come to all the different things food wise that you've done growing up like i said my my, my dad being a self-employed brick mason the winter time was always really lean for you know he he couldn't work if it was below freezing we we grew up with really short purse straps, you know, I mean, money was always tied. Uh, my parents did everything they could. All of us, my brother, my sister, me, we always had food on the table. We always had, you know, we might not have the cool guy clothes, you know, we, we might be having to wear, which I'm going to kind of age myself some more. We might not have the guest jeans. We might have the DoorDash jeans, but, you know, we always had the clothes that we needed. They just might not be the name brand that you wanted. And because of that, my dad always did garden work when he could. When he was real busy work-wise, the garden always got neglected. And, you know, us kids were supposed to go weed. And, of course, we wouldn't. And then he wouldn't care because he's working, you know, from before daylight till after dark, trying to make ends meet throughout the busy season. My mom worked, too, you know, so... We, we would try to have a garden, but we didn't always have a garden. Uh, we always had fruit trees, though. My dad always made for sure that we had fruit trees. Everywhere we've lived, he's planted fruit trees. And it was just something that, you know, it, it is a good idea to have. It's always, I mean, even if it's not, even if our apple trees don't make good apples for us to eat, it will attract deer. It will attract other animals that we can then use for food, even if the apples don't turn. So it's, it, it was a conscious effort 
and it did come from my upbringing, you know, being raised poor in Arkansas. I mean, that that's what you did. You know, you had to you had to somehow make up the difference. And like I said, I'm not knocking my parents at all. My parents did great. Uh, they're two of my best friends even today. I'm super close with them. I know that they did everything that they could for us kids. And I know that there were times that they did without so that we, you know, we could have some. You know, it's not their fault that we were, all of us were poor in Arkansas. You know, that, that was where that came from. Um, one thing I want to know is how long does it take for the fruit trees to mature where you're getting getting fruit it's going to depend on the tree and then it's also going to depend on your growing cycle and it's going to depend on what uh you know some apples come sooner than other apples it depends on the species of apple even like fruit or nut trees some pecan trees take 15 20 years before you'll get pecans some walnuts are the same way Generally, fruit trees are somewhere around four years, three years. It, it really, it depends. This past year should have been the first year that we got apples. We had blossoms. Everything was looking good. We had a really late hard frost and it killed everything. So this upcoming year, we should get apples. I believe our apples and our pears should be this year. Our peaches should be next year or the year after because we got those as grafts from my parents uh, peach trees so it really depends on like I said it depends on your species of apple or your species of fruit it kind of depends on your growing cycle and it depends on the type of tree that you've got so a uh, very vague answer but ours the, the stuff we've got should be three to four years on our apples uh, three to four years on our pears and about four maybe five years on our peach or uh, oh sorry go ahead those those trees i mean you weren't you weren't planting or were you planting them from seeds or like the small sapling you know foot two foot tall uh we got them they were a little bit taller than the two foot tall they were probably somewhere in the neighborhood of three to four foot counting the root ball you know you couldn't fit them in like a little suv when we got them we actually had to haul them in my truck now the the peach trees the peach trees, they started out as tiny little one foot tall sticks that you would have to be careful not to run over when you were mowing because you couldn't hardly see them. And that's why it's going to take at least an extra. I got you. Uh, our, uh, our blackberries and our grapes were planted by the previous people who owned the property. Uh, we planted muscadines to... Uh, to kind of mingle in with the grape. Uh, both me and my wife really like muscadine jelly and muscadine wine. So I've actually got oh, five gallons in the corner over there that's aging. So looking forward to when that's ready. The, uh, the wine and the mead making, that was uh, something I decided to take on as an extra skill for myself. You know, my wife, she took up the knitting and everything. I do the guns, the security. And I was like, I kind of want to learn how to make meat. You know, <laughs> the guys were talking about it. They had went to prepper camp or whatever it's called. Mm -hmm. One of the guys there was making it. 
And they were like, oh, we wish we would have seen how to do that. And I was like, well, shoot. I'll, I'll take the game. Well, I'll see if we, I can figure out. There's a couple of guys now that make it. I know uh, Joe, uh, he makes it. Uh, it seems like seems like there's like four or five of us now that make it from my original recipe that I put on the old Facebook group. But I, I wanted something that I, I could, A, I enjoy drinking it. I enjoy making it. It's a neat process. And on top of that, it's something that I can barter. There's always going to be a need for, for wine or meat or for alcohol if things ever get really bad, you know. So I've got a new skill for that. Are you still pretty low-tech with your, your supplies or have you moved up in what you use? I am very low tech on it. I want it to be as original as possible. You know, back in the 1800s, they didn't have all the fancy shit that we've got now, and they still made it without killing each other. <laughs> so that's kind of my theory on it. About the only thing that I've got that they really don't is uh, I've got good sterilizing uh, agents. So I'll wash everything in a sterilizer before I start. And then uh, about the only other thing is I use, uh, you know, I do a lot of hiking and camping every year. And every year at the beginning of what I call my hiking season, which is the fall, I buy a Sawyer water filter and I'll use that throughout hiking. And at the end of hiking season, my water filter becomes my mead filter and I'll use it to filter out impurities and stuff and then the next cycle I'll buy me a new water filter so I use that filter to get out a lot of the fines that you know would pass through like cheesecloth or you know pass through a, a normal filter that you would try to be getting the fines out of and that's one reason why my mead comes out so clear I've posted several pictures of it you can go back and find those it's on my Instagram and, and the Facebook group but you can see how clear it is it's because i use my hiking filter every every year so makes sense it's better than throwing it away yeah yeah the only thing is you got to make for sure not to get the new one mixed up with the old one because you don't want to be trying to filter water through that and kind of uh kind of ends up a little bit of an alcoholic taste <laughs> has that happened <laughs> that, that oh, looked... before i left i was like which one of these is the old one so i hooked them up to my water bottles and squirted it in my mouth i was like yeah that's the old one right there <laughs> <laughs> but i always check before i leave and then like i said uh generally i've got like a my little brewing area and then i've got like this room that's got all the stuff for camping the brewing area is in a different part so I'll bring it in here once I'm like actually brewing it, but while I'm making it and everything, I do it in a separate part of the house. So that helps to keep them separated. Try not to do get nerdy with the mead stuff. We can save that for a separate episode. <laughs> oh, I do it. The, I do it. I guess I do it closer to the prison way than. Yeah. <laughs> than what do it i don't i don't do all of the measuring so you might need someone i i got a lot of people started in it and there's a lot of people who are more advanced than me at it and they're adding this and doing that and 
making cabarets and Lord only knows what all. <laughs> I'm over here like, dude, it didn't kill me. I'm good. Yeah. <laughs> so cycling back or circling back just a little bit. Um, compared to, I guess, let's say, let's say before two years ago, up to that point, did you change priority or just kind of your philosophy on what you want to keep um you're talking about you know you're helping your parents out and you're cleaning everything did did that change you know just because you know before you're talking about something man-made maybe some kind of an economic collapse or something like that but then all now all of a sudden obviously the big deal with that you know for the past couple years has been sickness did did that uh, expose a hole or an empty spot in what you had or were you already prepped up or did you not really think it was that big of a deal? You were good with how you were? Uh, for, for the vast majority, I was already good the way I was because I had such kind of a, a wide branch of different types of preps. You know, I had food, I had I had the, the mead making, I had the, the water taken care of because like I said, we have two wells on our property, plus we have city water. Uh, I knew I didn't have to go anywhere if it got that bad. Now, being an essential employee, uh, that was a little bit different. So I knew I had to go. And when it was first, go, when it was first coming out, everything was getting kind of weird. Uh, I went and found N95 masks and I bought two cases of those. I gave one to my parents and I had one for me. Uh, I didn't really find anything prep wise other than like what I was talking about earlier with the, the ammunition. I couldn't train the way that I was because mm. I couldn't afford to buy, you know, a $50 box of ammo. I could have, but it would have been one box is all I bought. And mm. I didn't, I just, I refused to pay at that. Uh, I had enough to where if things went south, I could have protected what I think is enough to protect me and mine mm -hmm. uh, without getting into logistics of this many numbers of this round and this many numbers of that round. And, you know, I, I had, I had training ammo and I had storage ammo, but this went on longer than I thought. Right. So I had to go longer without training until stuff got down back to what I thought was a, a decent price. Hmm. Now I'm still paying $10 a box more for nine millimeter than I want to, but I don't think we're ever going to see $9 a box again. I think the new norm is about 18 to $20 a box. And that's for just cheap Lincoln stuff. I, hmm. I just, I don't think we're ever going to get back. I don't think we're ever going to see 762 by 39 ammo at 15 cents around. I know Palmetto State Armory is uh, supposed to be making steel-cased ammo next year. That's going to help, uh, especially having someone stateside making steel-cased. Who knows how long the Russian embargo is going to last. So, you know, right now you're 40 cents around. You can get brass case 223 for like 45 cents around. So do you shoot cheap, dirty ammo or do you buy nice brass case that you can reload for basically the same price. 
So I had to make some changes and I had to look at some philosophies a little bit different like that. And another philosophy, or I don't really want to say a philosophy, but another thing that I started changing as well, instead of having so many guns, let's focus on having a really nice, dependable, higher end gun versus having four cheap and expensive ones. Now, with that being said, I do have a cheap and expensive AR-15 that I'm using on those optic tests. That way I don't don't bother me if I drop it. I bought the cheapest one I could get off the of Palmetto State Armory. I paid uh, with shipping, delivered, taxes, everything, $430. And then I had a stripped lower that I bought, I don't know, a couple of years ago. I've been sitting in my closet. So I want to say I bought it for like 40 bucks, 50 bucks, somewhere in that neighborhood. So I built an AR-15 for less than $500. So I've got that one. I don't care if I drop it. That's what it's made for, you know. So that that's a little bit different. But for the vast majority, as I'm trying to get, you know, instead of having three AR-15s that each one has a $100 optic on, let's have one really nice BCM that's got, you know, a high-end optic, optic on it or, you know, something like that. So I did change my preps a little bit, but it, that really wasn't based on Corona. It was just kind of, uh, I've only got two arms <laughs> and I can only shoot one rifle at a time unless I do some sort of crazy Rambo <laughs> thing, spray and pray. So, you know, I was like, yeah, uh, let's, let's get some higher quality, higher end stuff and less of the, it's fun to have a whole bunch of different things. That was just, I don't know. That was just something that I kind of realized that it was prepper fantasy to, to have all of these different kits. And I, I even posted pictures and talked about, it, you know, months and months, probably a couple of years ago now on the old Facebook group, I had a picture. I had four different AKs. I had four different plate carriers. I had four different, chest rigs to go with the plate carriers and I had all of this stuff set up and my my theory was well if anything bad happens I can give this kit to this guy I can give this kit to this guy I'll have this kit and then I've still got this spare kit in case anyone else shows up and then I started realizing if these people are coming to me without anything to where they need all of this kit are they really going to be that beneficial toward me or is this someone I'm going to have to train? Is this, you know, what skill set do they have to where they bring nothing to the table? So I kind of started realizing, well, this is really just kind of that prepper fantasy. I'm, I'm prepping and trying to have all this stuff because I'm going to build a team. That's not, that's not really how it works. That's not what's going to really happen. What really happened is I'd have all that shit and I'd try to give it to somebody and They'd end up shooting me and then taking everything. And they were like, oh, look, thanks a lot. You know, I got everything I need for me and mine now. I said that wasn't necessarily pandemic based. It was just kind of a maybe I'm getting older. Maybe I'm getting a little slower. Maybe I'm getting a little more mature on what I think might happen. So in all of that, you didn't start stockpiling uh, hand sanitizer and toilet paper? No. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, we 
my, my wife has a thing about toilet paper, so we already had quite a bit. <laughs> uh, but no, I mean, what we did is we, we actually, we already had quite a bit of toilet paper because of the fact that we do live in the country. We have a burn barrel. I know that that might not be something that a lot of people are familiar with, but <laughs> I have a barrel that is specifically for burning trash and other crap. So our plan was we had a whole bunch of paper towels. We had a whole bunch of, you know, uh, toilet paper. We've got a whole bunch of old clothes. So worst case scenario, we'll wipe our butt with all of that. And instead of flushing it into the septic system, which isn't good for all of that, we'd just burn it in the burn bear. Really wasn't worried about any of that. The hand sanitizer, after about the first three or four months, when people weren't dropping dead in the street, when it wasn't, you know, I was seeing people getting sick and getting better. You know, you were hearing about celebrities. Tom Hanks had coronavirus and, you know, he's not the pinnacle of health. You know, he's an old white guy, you know, doesn't work out really. I mean, he might work out for a movie role, but you look at him and you don't think, wow, that guy's ripped. You know, he takes really good care of himself. And when he started pulling through and other people started pulling through, I was like, dude, this isn't that bad. Right. Um, and then as more and more information comes out, it kind of looks like it was a little bit oversold originally. Uh, now, had it been that bad, me and the wife had already talked about how, A, we were going to continue getting the, the groceries and the food from my parents. If it got so bad to where we couldn't do that, we do have their supplies. We have our supplies. And our plan was to migrate to their house because it is a little bit further out. And we would just take all of our stuff and basically bug out to there and live with them. Luckily, none of that ever happened. But we had talked about and we had contingency plans in case it did get that bad. We also, we also, we do have a still for making non-alcoholic stuff because that's the wall so oils and distilled water that's right uh, San sanitizes yes <laughs> and we were we were prepared to make our own hand sanitizer if we needed to mm. so we didn't have to but right. uh we do have that capability if we ever needed to Luckily, we, it, it never got that bad around here. My brother ended up, which my brother's a traveling welder, and he's, at the time, I think he was in, I don't know, somewhere up north, maybe maybe Vermont, somewhere. I can't remember. He got coronavirus. He pulled through. Uh, my sister, she's currently fighting coronavirus. She had it for like three or four days, and she's fine now. So luckily, my parents never got it. They got the jab because they thought that they needed it. Uh, I've never gotten the jab, so we'll just have to wait and see. I might, I might come back tomorrow and say I'm deathly ill. You might never hear <laughs> from me. I died from it, but that's a chance I'm willing to take right now. Yeah, I don't think you're going to get deathly ill at this point, but was the, uh, the, the plan for going out to the parents, was that something that was always a plan if stuff got to a certain point, or was that something that got uh, amended when, you know, everything that's been happening the past couple of years started to happen or? Well, my dad, he really started kind of paying attention, looking at the preps. I don't know why, but he thought that Obama was going to be the beginning of the end. So mm -hmm. when Obama first got elected, 
that was kind of what got my dad on board with prepping. And, you know, Obama was going to take your guns. That was a big thing. So my dad's like, okay, we need a couple of good semi-automatic guns. We need some ammo and we need some food. All right, dad, we can do that. We had always had the plan because I used to live on the same property as my parents. Uh, my son lives in that, that house now, so he lives on the same property with me. So, I mean, we're a very close family. We only live, you know, six miles away. So, I mean, we, we didn't move that far, but it's always been our plan to go there and to hide out there as long as possible because there's is the last house on the road. There's, mm. there's no houses beyond it. Their, their, their land is bordered on three sides by national forest. So, I mean, we're out there. The plan was always go there. And then from there, if things ever got bad, bad, like end of the world apocalypse, uh, whether it be zombies or red dawn or whatever, there is a, a couple of old places that I'm not going to talk about. No one really knows about them. So, I mean, it wouldn't really hurt to say it, but I do need to keep a little bit to myself. But there's a couple of old places that my dad has showed me that would be very remote, very hard to get to. You would have to have an extremely well-built, dedicated four-wheel drive, or you would have to hike in. Now, with the fact that the National Forest is pretty good size, I'm sure that there's other people who know of these same places, so we would have to be there first. Who knows how that would play out? Right. But I, I'm, I know that there's more, there's not as many young people that know of these places. It's stuff that the old timers, you know, my dad, he's, he's approaching 70. His, he was one of the young guys in the group of friends that found some of these old places. So I'm, like I said, I'm sure other people know about them, but a lot of the local people who knew about them have passed away. So I, I do have some little hidey hoes out in the woods, but in a real end of the world situation, everyone's going to try to go and live in the woods. No one's going to be able to make it work, but a lot of people are. <laughs> We're hoping that we can stay in our house as long as possible and only leave in the absolute worst case scenario. Do you scout out those hideouts often once no. a year? I personally don't. My dad, he does more of the off-roading and him and my mom, that's that's their pastime. They don't go out. They don't go, you know, spending money and going to shows or anything like that. They hardly even go out and eat. Their idea of a date is they get in their old four-wheel drive and they drive the, the old roads. So my parents see them. Maybe once a year, once every two or three years, I'll go with my dad and we'll kind of drive through the area where these places are. But it's not something that we regularly scout out. A, we don't want to be showing signs going to them. And when you're driving through the woods, it's easy to see where someone's been. You know, you're driving down a, a road and you see a little cutoff and you see stuff that's been traveled you can tell when stuff has been traveled so we don't we don't want to put those markers out there understand that but that's you know once again that's getting into like prepper fantasy 
we're going to go live off of the land. That's, it'll probably be too late by the time we decide to do that anyway, but it's always been the plan to go to their house, hunker down as long as possible, and then go to the woods. I'm just jealous everybody has these woods to go walking around in. <laughs> I miss that. <laughs> that was, that part was by design for us. Uh, growing up, my parents purposely bought in the Ozark National Forest or on the edge of the Ozark National Forest because that was their stomping ground. That was what they liked. They loved being in the woods. They didn't want neighbors. They didn't want to, to hear some kids screaming, you know, or some man and wife fighting, they, they moved us out. And as a kid, it fucking sucked. I mean, it was rough growing up and there's literally no other kids for 20 miles from me. I mean, there was nobody. Uh, I had one friend and I, I met him in 10th grade, I think. I think I was in 10th and he was in 11th. And he lived a couple of miles down the road and we ended up becoming friends. But I mean, there were seriously hardly any kids around going to stand the night at your friend's house or having a friend come and spend the night at your house. It was, it was a big deal because I mean, we were so far out when I became 16, 17 years old and I started driving, there was no way in the world I was going to get a girl to come out. Cause I mean, it was so far out. I mean, it was ridiculous. So it was rough growing up when I was growing up 16, 17 years old, I was real big into skateboarding, huge into it, loved it. It was, you give me a skateboard and I could, I could stand on that thing for hours and not do anything else. I mean, borderline addicted to it. And at the time, the, the mecca of skateboarding, at the, always the West Coast, but it was really big in Portland. And that was my dream is I wanted to go to Portland. I wanted to go to Portland and, and skate. So growing up, it, it wasn't, I, this, this wasn't always the plan for me. Luckily, as the older I got, the more I realized that I didn't want to be places like that. You know, even currently with my job, the type of job I've got, I could transfer to just about any state, just about any area that had an opening due to my skill set. I stay here for this reason. Now, once we retire, my parents pass away. Me and the wife have talked about maybe moving, but we don't know. We, we argue over where we want to be. I like Colorado and I like the deserts of New Mexico and she really liked when we lived in South Louisiana down in the swamp and it was cool down there too, but I don't know. So we, we kind of, we talk about having a winter home and a summer home living down South in the, the winter and up North in the summer. But then my wife also says she's not going to live anywhere where it gets in single digits. So, but yeah, long story long, it was always plans to, to go there and to base out of that location and then only if things were eminently bad to leave that location. And that's it for another episode of the Aftershock Podcast. Thanks again to Bo Bulls. Go check them out on YouTube at Arkansas Outdoors Channel. And if you haven't already, give us a follow on the Wasted Ammo Podcast Facebook and Aftershock underscore podcast on Instagram. If you need some extra energy in your day, go to strikeforceenergy.com and use the promo code aftershock all caps uh, at checkout and you'll get 20 percent off your total order thanks again everybody and we'll see you next time aftershock.